Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 3 and 4. And the message is entitled, The Messenger of the Gospel. And this is part 2. Last time was part 1, but I didn't label it because I didn't know if I would change the title. But Paul the Apostle is, um, is here before us. And um, he um, has mentioned the fact that he's about to pray. And commentator says that he got sidetracked, as we said last time. But it's impossible because he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, Paul is speaking exactly as the Holy Spirit of God is directing and guiding him. He will get to his prayer in verse 14 down to 21. Now remember that verse 2 through 13 is one long sentence, and we've run into these long sentences of Paul. He just um, is able to crank them out. Paul uh, is presented to us in two ways. We said last time in verse 1 through 7, the messenger of the gospel, verses 18 through 13, as the ministry of the gospel. Paul is uh, presented also with three metaphors as the messenger of the gospel. Uh, first, a prisoner in verse 1, and he said prisoner of Jesus Christ. And then second, a steward. This is uh, seen through verse 2 to 6. And lastly, as a servant in verse 7. So last time we looked at Paul, the messenger of the gospel, which was characterized by three things, the anticipation of Paul in verse 1, the first portion, then the situation of Paul and the administration of Paul. Now we want to look at Paul, the messenger of the gospel revealed to him, which is also characterized by three things. Let me read our text here. How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which... When you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So the three things that are characterized here, the message of the gospel revealed to him, is first, that Paul received the gospel by divine revelation, the first part of three. Then secondly, Paul understood the gospel by divine inspiration, also three. And then, thirdly, Paul imparted the gospel through divine proclamation in verse 4. And so Paul begins here as Paul receives the gospel by divine inspiration in verse 3. Listen again. How that by revelation. The apostle Paul reminded the Ephesians here the manner and method that he obtained the gospel. Paul is using the word revelation to mean God had imparted to him the gospel. The word revelation, apocalypsis, means literally the unveiling, the laying bare, or naked. The idea in the context refers to making uh, the divine truth of God known. The same word is used in the book of Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.1, same word. The word is found 18 times in the New Testament. The context will indicate what is being unveiled or the nature of the unveiling. But revelation is defined as the act of God whereby he makes himself in truth known as special times and to specific people. 
God sovereignly reveals himself, his will, his purposes, or events. The present context here, notice, is the disclosing of truth about the gospel of grace. That's still the topic. Paul was a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the benefit of the Gentiles, he said in verse 1. And Paul is the steward of the grace of God entrusted to him for the benefit of the Gentiles in verse 2. So Paul had received all this through divine revelation directly to him. But Paul also knew of two types of revelation. There is first general revelation, but it cannot save a person. It can only let you know that God exists as creator. In Romans chapter 1, 19 and 20, it says that he is the creator of all things. So you have general revelation, creation, Romans 1, 19 through 21. Second, by conscience, Romans 2, 14 through 15. We're accusing or excusing ourselves. By conscience, we know what is right and wrong. And thirdly, by history. That's general revelation. That tells you that God is and he exists. But it cannot give you the plan of salvation. The second is the special revelation. This is um, for the purpose of salvation. The Old Testament theophanies declare God, miracles, prophecies, the appearance of Jesus Christ prior to the, Old, the New Testament. Exodus 3, uh, 2 through 5, in the burning bush, God appeared to Moses, a theophany, a physical evidence to demonstrate God's presence. No man can see God, but the manifestation of his presence. In the New Testament, we have the epitome of that in the manifestation of Jesus Christ. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Hebrews uh, 1, 1 through 3 says that God in the, at different times and in diverse manners spoken times past to the fathers as in these last days spoken unto us through his dear son. And so he is the epitome and the ultimate revelation of God because all the Old Testament was progressive. And therefore, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith in Romans 1, 16 and 17. So you have general revelation that uh, everybody is held accountable that they know there's a God, but they don't want to retain him as God, so they create a God in their own image. Then you have special revelation through theophanies and dreams and visions and then the Old Testament and the ultimate manifestation of the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the Incarnation. Now, Paul knew the revelation was and is the inspired Word of God, what God is revealing. Inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon divinely chosen men in consequence of which their writings become trustworthy and authoritative. That's the definition of Baker's Dictionary of Theology. Now, inspiration deals with the recording of God's truth, making it infallible and inerrant, not only in the things pertaining to life and practice, but history, archaeology, and science, not man's theories or hypotheses like evolution. And there has never been any scientific law, scientific fact, not a theory, not a hypothesis, or archaeology that has ever contradicted one verse of the Bible. In fact, they have affirmed the verses and chapters in history of the Bible. 
Inspiration claims divine source and authority then. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. The word theo means God, neusto means breathed, literally expired out from God. This is where we get God's word. It isn't a history book, it isn't a math book, it isn't some burned out hippie going to Mount Ararat and taking some ass and coming back with revelation. The scriptures are expired out of God as holy men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1, 19-21 tells us. The translation there of no private interpretation is a horrible translation. Both in the old King James, the new King James, and any other James they put them in, okay? King James, old King James, a good translation, but that particular word is not. It means it is of no private source or origin, personally. But as men of God were carried along, the Spirit of God directed them. Now, they did not speak of their own impulse and the source of their origin then. But as the Holy Spirit directed and guided them, giving them the freedom of speech and vocabulary and expressions of each person, and yet making it inerrant and infallible when recorded. How can that be? We'll ask God together. It's called plenary verbal inspiration. Big theological word. Now, notice Paul the Apostle reminded the Ephesians about his conversion and discipleship by Jesus. This is what he's referring to. He didn't get this from his Judaism. In fact, because he was such a zealous Jew, we're going to see he hated Christians. His conversion took place on the road to Damascus as Jesus appeared to Paul and saved him in Acts 9. In Acts 9, 3 through 6, it says, demonstrates his hatred for Christians. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the ghost. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. First, God revealed himself to him to save him. Next, God is going to reveal to him what he wants him to know and do. In fact, in Acts 9, still in verse 16 to 20, Ananias objected to going to Paul. He says, Lord, don't you know this guy hates us? He came to a prison. I know, Ananias. <laughs> he seen a man in a dream, laying hands on him. I want you to go. And in Acts 9, 16 through 20, it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying hands on him and said, Brother Saul. You realize how much faith that took by Ananias? This guy's public enemy number one against Christians. He kills them. He imprisons them. He causes them to blaspheme. He watched them being stoned. Stephen, there was Paul. They laid Stephen's clothes at his feet. 
He's going to show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And here, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. You remember, he was led by a little boy into the city. Okay? This powerful persecutor of uh, Christianity, he's, he's humbled by God. He becomes little before the Lord. What a transformation. And so when he had received food, he was strengthened. And Saul spent some days with his disciples, the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, he preached to Christ in the synagogue that he is the son of God. You talk about radical. He blew Jews' mind. This guy's a persecutor. Now he's preaching Jesus, just like if he went to the seminary for all his life. Wow. Scales fell from his eyes. What a beautiful picture of what happens when we're born again. All of a sudden, our eyes are open and we realize how foolish we lived and how dark we were in the world. And how we were headed for hell and we thought we were having a blast. <laughs> Amazing. If you remember Paul speaking to Agrippa in Acts 26, 12 through 16. Um, he told Agrippa, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authorities and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, shining around me, and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the gold. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. As he's writing to the Ephesians, he's giving them what God had revealed to him. Now you see the two different accounts we pick up little added things whenever Paul gives his testimony. doesn't mean there's a contradiction. You take them all and put them all together and you get a complete picture. Just like you would take three or four witnesses of an accident from different perspectives, you wouldn't think they were contradictory. You wouldn't think one is lying. You'd put them all together and realize really what happened in that accident. You get a full picture of it. Now his disciples, or his discipleship, remember took place in the Arabian desert. Jesus had spent three and a half years with his disciples, the 12, including Judas Iscariot. And Jesus has spent three years with Paul in the Arabian desert. Now, we don't get this here, but in the book of Galatians, in chapter 1, 11, and 12, it says that the gospel was not sourced in man nor imparted by man to Paul. He says this, but I made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's writing to the Galatians who are being deceived and they're turning their back on the gospel. 
So it's not sourced in man. He didn't receive it by man. He wasn't taught it by man. Very, very clear. In the same chapter, Galatians, verse 15 through 17, he says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. That was a period of three years, as we'll see. And so Paul was preaching in Damascus and he got a little too hot to handle and King Aretas wanted to take his head off and they let him down a basket through a window and he scurried off to Jerusalem, as we know. He saw Peter and James and besides that, he didn't, he didn't see anybody else. And, uh, but he got too hot to handle. The Jews wanted to kill him so they sent him on R&R up to Tarsus for about seven to nine years <laughs> until God called him over to Antioch to preach with Barnabas for one year at Antioch. And from there, the three missionary journeys took place. Amazing. Still in Galatians 1, 18 to 21, he says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterwards, I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia. So once again, the three years, Jesus Christ revealed to him you can imagine all this, as you know, we'll see that Paul was taught at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the number one teacher. Gamaliel said he had only one complaint against Paul. He couldn't find enough books for him. Um, and yet, none of that, as we'll see, helped him. Now, he knew the law. He was an intellectual giant, as we'll see, but all of that without the Spirit of God works against him. Because rather than it revealing God, it makes him an enemy of God. Because of the law and the righteousness and the pride and the, the arrogance behind him. One put it this way about the Word of God. Take the 13 claims about creation in Genesis chapter 1. The chance factor that Moses guessed the proper order is one chance in 311 million 351,040. Dr. Stoner. Science Speaks, a little book if you can get it. He's a teacher at Pasadena City College in the 60s. <laughs> The chance of probability of those factors in Genesis, that's how big it is. If you don't believe this is the word of God, then you must think that Moses was really, really, really lucky to describe them in such order. Do you believe that all the books of the Bible are given by God or do you um, exclude some? If you do not believe that all were given by God, then who's going to determine which ones are of God and which ones are not? Now, you, you can get on the Internet and find out people that will tell you which are and which are not, and they'll tell you without any hesitation, as if they're smarter than Jesus and the first century church and everything else. 
The Bible is the word of God. The scriptures declare it as we read over 3,800 times in the Old Testament phrases such as, Thus saith the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me. The Lord said, Write, the spirit of the Lord came upon me. I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall say. We find them in the New Testament also, particularly from the mouth of Jesus, God himself. There were prophets who received divine revelation, as you know, but did not put them into written form. Such as Elijah, Elijah, Elisha, many others. But um, they are mentioned in the historical books as prophets. So you have the prophets who wrote the revelation and those who just proclaimed the revelation. But they're recorded in the historical books as being prophets. First Thessalonians 2.13 says... For this reason, we also think, thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So in other words, the Thessalonians received the preaching of the gospel as what it was, the word of God. No doubt about it. They embraced it completely and it did the work that they expected it to do. Do you have complete confidence in the infallibility and inerrancy of the scriptures? If you don't, how can you in good conscience proclaim the word of God with authority to others? The Lord Jesus believed it was the word of God. He never doubted or implied any manuscript error. He spoke about Noah, he spoke about creation, he spoke about Adam and Eve, he mentioned Cain and Abel, he referred to Sodom and Gomorrah, he quoted Moses, Isaiah, Daniel, many others, he referred to the scripture as prophecy. Jesus accepted the Old Testament as historical and literal, including the prophecies, and declared this. Listen carefully, Matthew 5.18. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. The smallest letters are the smallest stroke above the letter. The markings to know how to pronounce them. Wow. Now, am I going to believe what Jesus says or some PhD? Hands down, Jesus. <laughs> Simple. Paul received the gospel by divine revelation. Secondly, in verse 3, Paul understood the gospel by divine illumination. Very important. The apostle Paul declared God had also imparted to him the ability to perceive the gospel. He made known to me, he says, Paul distinguishes the three persons of the Trinity constantly. The personal pronoun he refers back to God the Father in the previous verse, verse 2. The second person is Christ Jesus in verse 1. And the third person is the Holy Spirit in verse 22 of chapter 2. And you find it before, but those are just the closest to this. And we'll see them again as we move forward. Now the phrase made known means... To become known or be recognized. The idea is perspective or perceptive understanding. Thorough knowledge. The context is spiritual truth that he's talking about here. Revelation of God's word. 
The word is found six times in the epistle. We already saw it in chapter 1, verse 9, right here, 3.3, 3, 3.5, and 6.21. All of them refer to the ability of believers to understand the word of God and reveal the will of God, all of them. The context always regards spiritual truth illuminated by the Holy Spirit, the one believing in faith, the revelation God has made known by his word, the word of God. In other words, they approach it as such. And if they're non-believers, as they approach it, and they begin to read, the Holy Spirit begins to deal with their heart. And if they're open, then God will also shed light, as we'll see. Now, Paul was declaring that he did not come to comprehend the revelation of God based on his own human intellectual abilities then. Yet he was an intellectual giant. Listen to what Paul told the Philippians. He said he had more confidence in his abilities of the flesh than any of his contemporaries. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more. Philippians 3, 4. <laughs> he gave his pedigree in the next verse. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, verse 5. Paul was known for his passion for Judaism, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is the law, blameless, verse 6. Paul told the riotous crowd at the temple about his teacher, in Acts 22, 3. He says... I am indeed a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia. Brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel. Taught according to the strictest of our father's law. And was zealous towards God as you all are today. This is why they were trying to kill him. Remember the centurion came and arrested him. And he's going up to Antonio's fortress steps. He asked permission to speak. He's addressing them. They all knew who Gamaliel was. And I'm sure they knew who Paul was. But he reminds them who he sat under. In fact, Paul told Agrippa in Acts 26, 9 through 11, I indeed, I myself thought I must do something contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I mean, Paul was just a tyrant. And as he's giving his witness to all these individuals, God is using him. I mean, he wrote the majority of the New Testament. The majority of it. Notice the Apostle Paul declared God enabled him then to perceive the gospel. Listen, by illumination. The mystery, as I have briefly written already. Paul stated the specific thing he grasped as clear as the sun. 
was the mystery. The concept of illumination is related to the Holy Spirit, making clear the truth of the written revelation. So as we have seen revelation refer to the material revealed by God, the content, inspiration referred to the method of recording inerrant and infallibility of the revelation. Illumination refers to the meaning of the recording of the revelation. The Holy Spirit turns the light on. Bow. It hits you. You understand it. You know exactly what it's saying. The term mystery, mysterion, comes from the word muo, to shut the mouth. It means something hidden or secret and was used for the secret initiatory rites of the pagan religions. The term is used always in the New Testament for things previously hidden but now made naked or unveiled, revealed. So whenever you read the word mystery in the New Testament, every one of those mysteries are knowable. They have been revealed. They're not secret. Okay? Listen to Romans 16.25. Not to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation up here. According to Revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. This was concealed in the Old Testament. Salvation was only of the Jew. It was contained but concealed, and it was revealed openly in the New Testament. Because the Bible is progressive revelation, right? The new is the fulfillment of the old. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, it says, For the mystery, same word, of the lawless one is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So it's not a mystery anymore. The lawless one is the Antichrist. He's already at work, the spirit. But he's being restrained until the restraining force is taken away, which I believe is the church. And then he'll be revealed. So it's not hidden anymore. We know that, right? First Timothy 3.16, it says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up in glory. It's no secret no more. God became man. The incarnation. Revelation one twenty, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. It's not mysteries anymore, right? It's not hidden. It's revealed. It's interpreted for us. Revelation seventeen seven seven says, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman. And the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. It's not a mystery. It's the seven hills of Rome, the Catholic Church. It's hard to move your church from the address you have. 
Simple. So the word is does not mean hidden, but now revealed. Notice Paul qualified the mystery by the commentary that begins the parenthesis. As I have briefly written already. In other words, the Gentiles' previous lost condition, they were thought and looked down by the circumcision. They were called uncircumcision. Without Christ, alien from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger from the covenant of promise, without hope, without Christ, without God in the world. Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. That's what he's referring to. That he had just written to them. He's pointing back to it. Verse 13, down to 16 of chapter 2. That the Gentiles press in nearness to God by the blood of Christ. He being the peace between Gentile and Jew. Removing hostility between each other. And creating one new man of the two. Reconciled to God in one body through the cross. This is what he has just told them. And in 17 down to 22, that the Gentiles and the Jews came through the preaching of the gospel to the Father by one spirit, being members of the household of God according to the teaching of the apostles and prophets, Jesus being the chief cornerstone, comprising the temple of God, the dwelling of place of God in spirit. Verses 17 through 22 of chapter 2. This is just what he's just told him. He's referring back to that. Distinct from a Jew under the law. Distinct from a Gentile without the law or religious. One body. The church of Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile in Christ. That's why I always... um, I always think it odd when people try to join themselves to some kind of um, distinctiveness of the church, especially um, completed Jews, Messianic Jews, where Gentiles would go to the Messianic church and they would get into the whole ritual and the whole feast and all that. Why? Those are the shadows of things to come. The very image is Christ. Why would you want to do that? Jew and Gentile are one in the same church. You don't exalt your messianic aspect of it. It's unbiblical. There should be Jew and Gentile in the body. The Gentile shouldn't want to go to the Jewish side. <laughs> it's not biblical. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm just saying it's not biblical. <laughs> it's simple. God wants his church to have everything, everyone, without distinction. That's the church of Jesus Christ. Because we did that in the world, right? We, you were a lowrider, you hung out with the lowriders, you know? You're a surfer, you hang out with the surfers. You're a doper, you hang out with the dopers. You're a drunker, you hang out with the drinkers. Whatever. You know what I mean? It's the way it is. Notice Paul used the word mystery here, as we've mentioned, and he, meant, and he uses it six times in the epistle. In Ephesians 1.9, he says, um, he used it for salvation, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed 
in himself. And that's where he speaks about predestined from the foundation of the world. In 3.3, as we have here, for the Jew and Gentile one, how that by revelation he made known to us the mystery, as I have briefly written already, looking back. In 3.4, Jesus is the head by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Verse 4. Then 3.9, for unity in Christ. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. And then in 5.32, for a marriage bond of Christ to the believer, he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. He has just finished speaking about husbands and wives. The parallel of Christ to the church. And in Ephesians 6.19, for communication of the gospel of Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. It's only through Christ, Jew and Gentile, one. Because God sees the world only in three divisions, Jew, Gentile, or the church of God. When he looks down to the church, he doesn't see a black guy, doesn't see a brown guy, doesn't see a Jew, doesn't see a Greek, doesn't see a Scythian, doesn't see a barbarian, doesn't see male, doesn't see female. He sees a believer. Though the other things are all there and they're true. But that's not how he looks at it. We do. <laughs> but God doesn't. The illumination of the Holy Spirit is much like um, night vision. You might look at it that way. You put night vision on, you're able to get an advantage over people because you can see them real good. While they're completely blind to you. We're able to see the word of God and understand it. Not because we're intellectually brilliant, as we've already pointed. Paul was a brilliant man, but that's not why he understood. It was illumination of the Holy Spirit of God. He will use your brain, but that's not why you understand. <laughs> the natural man cannot experience illumination. The God of this world has blinded them to the truth of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 2.14 and Galatians, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. They were dead in trespasses and sins, as you and I were in Ephesians 2.1. The believer is able to understand the deep things of God, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.10. He judges spiritual things with spiritual. The believer is able to understand the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.10. And because the believer has the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. We have the Spirit of God. We have the mind of Christ. We have the word of God. We've got everything we need. The armor of God. You remember the woman of Samaria believed the gospel by the illumination and conviction of the Holy Spirit. Listen to the words of those who believe through her witness. Listen carefully. John 4, 41 and 42. And many more believed because of his, own, of his own word. Then she said to the men, to the woman, 
Uh, or they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Not because you said it, but they were illuminated and convicted by the Spirit of God. He received the title of Savior of the world, not in Jerusalem, but in Samaria. Kind of ironic, isn't it? (laughs) Philip preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch from Isaiah 53. And the Holy Spirit illuminated his understanding, convicted him, and he believed the word of God. Listen to Acts 8, 35-37. Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning at the scripture, meaning Isaiah 53, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And you know what happened after that. He dunked him. The Spirit of God raptured. Philip chose Otis and the eunuch was left alone and he went back home. (laughs) Illumination and conviction. You and I believe by the illumination and conviction of the Holy Spirit also through the gospel. Enabling us to see our lost condition under the wrath of God. And we decided to believe that Jesus died for us and in our place that he be able to forgive us of our sins and transform our hearts that's exactly what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 37 through 39 it says now when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles men and brethren what shall we do then Peter said to them repent And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. The illuminating work of the Spirit of God. From the beginning of illumination to bring conviction for repentance to the ongoing work as you continue to walk with the Lord every day of your life. Paul understood the gospel by divine illumination. Notice thirdly in verse 4. Paul imparted the gospel through divine proclamation. In verse 4 here, the apostle Paul declared they could also understand the spiritual truths of the gospel. It is amazing to me how Paul never tried to present himself as someone who has some elite privilege or closer to God or had one over on everybody else and no one could ever rise up to his level. What an example to us because that's exactly what the scriptures teach. He says, by which when you read, you may understand. Paul is still referring to the mystery of the Jew and Gentile one in Christ that he was writing about. 
indicated by the phrase, by which. He was writing the revelation of God that God had imparted to him at this moment, as he's writing it. He was writing under inspiration, being carried along by the Holy Spirit to ensure inerrancy and infallibility. Paul is referring to their capacity to understand the divine revelation in the letter that he is writing to them because they are believers. He would never say this to non-believers. The word may means to be able. There's no doubt in it. Sometimes we may, well, maybe, maybe not. He says that you be able. The idea is to have the power and ability by the Holy Spirit that dwelt in them. Is by the comforter. Not their own natural ability of intellect or education. Literally, the Greek says, you are able, the indicative present middle. The middle person means you are the one that's doing it through you, okay? Through the Holy Spirit, you're the vessel. The phrase, when you read, means to distinguish, recognize, and know accurately, cognitively. He is describing the very moment they would be reading the letter. That as they receive this epistle and they begin to read it, they're going to have this understanding accurately. The tense again is a participle present active, literally reading. It appears 33 times in the New Testament. All refer, every one of them, to reading the word of God. Scripture, three times it is used in Colossians 4, 16, as Paul there says, make sure that this epistle is read, Ephesians, so on and so forth. Every one of those 33 times, it's about reading the Word of God. This is the Word. The result would be to understand, to perceive with the mind. It's translated, think, in Ephesians 3, 20. Unto him was able to do abundantly above all we can ask or think. This is the word. Eight times it's presented in the gospel by the mouth of Jesus. Six other times in the letters. To perceive with the mind. Then notice the apostle Paul desired they comprehend with, comprehend all the revelation about Jesus. He says, my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Paul makes the revelation God gave to him personal, my knowledge. You ever read when Paul says, my gospel? (laughs) You see, it belongs to you, it belongs to me. It's what transformed me, it's what saved me, it's what dwells in me. Is what controls me, is what guides me, is what rules me, is what has authority over my life. The word my indicates all that Paul learned in those three years in Arabia. All revealed during the seven to nine years in Tarsus. 
All that God revealed to him in that one year at Antioch. All that God had imparted to Paul in his travels in the three missionary journeys. The word knowledge, synesis, means a running together, a flowing together. The Old Testament scriptures and prophecies to the New Testament fulfillment, you're able to line them up. You're not seeing double or contrary, but you're, you're able to see the flow of them. Now, at this point, they only had the Old Testament. But God is using Paul to write much of the New Testament and the Gospels are being written. Then the Revelation at the end, about 95. And, and, and the Revelation that God has given these men, they, all they have is the Old Testament. So the Revelation that's being given to these men, they, it fits right in with the Old Testament. In fact, it illuminates and completes it clearly. They see them as complementary, not as contradictory. Paul is not referring to mere intellectual knowledge again, but to the mystery of Christ, he says. Mystery, mysterion again, means something previously hidden but now made known. So whatever this mystery of Christ is, it's known. Where is it known? In the revelation of the New Testament, (laughs) which is the clear fulfillment of the prophecy of the Old Testament. The relationship is to his office. One word, Christ. Christos, the anointed Messiah. A very particular office. All that can be known about the person in ministry of Christ by his children. The extent of his atonement that anyone can be saved by grace through faith. And we can go on and on. Everything is in the New Testament. Clearly revealed. Professor M. Montiero Williams said, quote, Pile them, if you will, on the left of your study. But place your own Bible on the right side all by itself, all alone. And with a wide gap between them, for there is a gulf between it and the so-called books of the East, which severs the one from the other. The Bible is unique. It is in a human book. It isn't like any other book. Men who have tried to destroy it are gone. The Bible's still here. Listen to the benefit of the Word of God to those who can understand it, which is the believer. And I'm just going to take Psalm 19 and go from verse 7 on down. That will suffice us. In verse 7 of Psalm 19, tells us it is complete and sufficient. Listen, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. Verse 8, 
The word of God results in joy and wisdom. The statutes of the Lord Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. You're able to see truth to reality. Verse 9, the word makes you humble, seeing its authority over your life. The fear of the Lord Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord Yahweh are true and righteous altogether. Verse 9. In verse 10, the word is of greater value than anything that is thought valuable. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Verse 11, the word is protection and rewarding. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. In verse 12, the word is convicting and forgiving. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Verse 13, the word is able to check me and keep me from sin. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Verse 14. The word is transforming and pleasing to God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to your sight, O Lord Yahweh, my strength and my Redeemer. Jesus is called the Word of God. And in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Revelation thirteen nineteen and Colossians 2, 3. Paul imparted the gospel through divine proclamation. And those who were lost would be able to make a decision to be saved or remain lost. And those who received the epistles were able to understand them as they read them. The Holy Spirit illuminated. Wow. You and I experience that every day as we read God's word, as we study God's word. And so this is Paul, the messenger of the gospel that was revealed to him. Characterized by these three things. Paul received the gospel by divine revelation. Paul understood the gospel by divine illumination. Paul imparted the gospel through divine proclamation. Ephesians is just such an incredible, incredible letter. So rich. Remember the first three chapters, the wealth of the believer. By the love of God. The second division. The walk of the believer. In the love of God. And the third one when you get to the armor. The war for the believer. Through the love of God. The focus is the love of God. We are truly wealthy. Father thank you for your grace. Your love. Your goodness. Deal with our hearts. And we thank you for tonight. 
And we pray, Lord, you continue to just turn on the light to our hearts and minds, that we may be pleasing to you. We pray for wisdom and direction in our days, Lord, that you have allowed us to be in in the time that you have chosen us to speak for you, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you're over the Internet. God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe that he's God who became man, the Holy Spirit has illuminated you to see that he is the incarnation of God who died in your place and paid the price for your sin, then he's also revealed to you that he's able to forgive you. But you must be the one to call on his name. It doesn't happen automatically. If you call upon his name, you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, the Bible says you shall be saved by grace through faith, that not of yourself. It's simply a gift of God. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to him. And he will save you right now and give you a brand new heart and make you his child. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.